0: A reading from the first letter of Paul to Timothy. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and in their eagerness to be rich some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains but as for you man of god shun all of this pursue righteousness godliness faith love endurance gentleness fight the good fight of the faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession In the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous, and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. The Holy
1: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Jesus said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died And cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. They have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord.
2: To you, okay. Grant us wisdom, Lord. Grant us courage for the living of these days, and may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. While I was driving into work this morning, as the sun was still rising coming up Lagunitas here, a deer crossed the road in front of me. As is frequently the case at dawn and at dusk, there are many deer about. And we see them commonly on the roads in Marin. Uh, But I was reminded as I saw it of the great poet and scholar Robert Graves who in the middle of the last century wrote his seminal critical work which is called The White Goddess. The subtitle is A History of Poetic Myth. A little light reading for you if you (laughs) haven't got anything going. Uh, In it, Graves identifies the deer in Roman mythology as the symbol of wisdom uh, associated with the goddess Diana, who is the goddess of the hunt. And she seeks and pursues the deer, which is wisdom, But the deer is clever and hides in the thicket. And so the hunter has to seek and work and pursue wisdom, and it's a difficult task, as it is hunting deer in the thickets. Um, Graves concludes that this is a lesson for us about how to read poetry, because poetry says one thing on the surface... But the surface is really the thicket of language. And what is concealed in the thicket is the meaning that the poet attempts to convey. Uh, And we, the reader, have to work to pursue the deer, the wisdom, the meaning behind the thicket. And Graves also says that this tendency of poetic language to do this has its origins in religious life because the things that we want to say about God are things that cannot be said plainly. They have to be said using a thicket of language that we, the listeners, the hearers, the people at prayer, have to unentangle and hunt and pursue the wisdom concealed in the stories and the texts of our tradition. So it is, when we read scripture... We make a mistake if we think that the scripture says plainly what there is to say about God. We might make an analogy between scripture and, say, for example, a cookbook, wherein it's not enough. I mean, it might be interesting just to read the recipe, but that's not really the purpose of the book. The recipe is there to inform you how to make and share and savor delicious food, right? So when we read scripture, we have to do a little work to pursue the deer in the thicket, or, looking at it maybe another way, a little work to cook what is nourishing and share and feed ourselves with what is there. So today's story from the Gospel of Luke is a story that is archetypal in the ancient world. Stories like it exist in other places in scripture, and in other ancient sources and they continue to this day. It's a reversal of fortune story. There was a poor man and there was a rich man and then later the rich man was poor and the poor man was rich, (laughs) ta-da. It's hard to know exactly what we're supposed to take from this story, but I think it would be a little bit like just reading the recipe if all we took from the story was that somehow between this world and the next, God is going to reverse the fortunes of all the people so that those who are rich now will suffer then and those who are poor now will be in abundance then. I don't think that's the proper use of this text. The meaning-making that we seek is something that we have to do together. It's something that the tradition of the church teaches us happens in community, collectively, so I, have only, I can only see through one part of the thicket and you bring your own viewpoint and your own angle. And we work together to understand, uh, to develop a common understanding of the stories of our tradition. And sometimes we scratch our heads a little bit and think, well, what would that look like? What would it be like for us to, to all be together understanding the meaning, the difficult meaning of these texts? And Jesus... And the world give us an example of what that's like, and it's something that we encounter every day and which features prominently in this and many other of Jesus' teachings. And that example is money. Everybody knows what money means. But the value of money is something that we have constructed for ourselves. It's been millennia in the making. And by now, each of us is fully equipped to effortlessly understand the precise meaning of money and what it's for. But, let's be clear. Money and the value of money is not real. The value of money is something that we have invented for ourselves in order to facilitate exchanges of other kinds of things. Money is a delusion that we share. Now, this is a useful delusion... Uh, I'm glad that when I write a check from my bank account to the other bank (laughs) that has my mortgage, I'm glad that we agree that the amount I have written is the amount they receive and that our our accounts uh, share the same sense of meaning about the value of that money. But this is something that we have constructed for ourselves in order to facilitate those kinds of exchanges we are less skilled and less acclimated to the construction of the things that are valuable in the kingdom of God. The things which scripture tells us are actually real. The things that predate our existence, the things which, are, uh, which exist in nature, and the things which characterize the real value of our life together here on earth and in the world to come. If all the money on earth were to disappear tomorrow, we would still be able to love. If all the money on earth were to disappear tomorrow, we would still find it within ourselves to be generous. If all the money on earth were to disappear tomorrow, we could still care for one another. And if all the money on earth were to disappear tomorrow, we could still find a community of relationship among one another as sisters and brothers in the family of God. In the ancient world, there was a tremendous gap between those with wealth and those with nothing. And the gap, as the story from Jesus articulate so well, was unbridgeable. There was no way to work yourself out of poverty. And if you were rich, you were going to stay that way until you died. In our world today, there is an increasingly unbridgeable gap between rich and poor. And the gap is getting wider every day. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, is at pains to make clear That wealth in and of itself is not the problem, but the misuse of wealth and the confusion between wealth and God's purposes is what exacerbates the chasm between rich and poor. So Paul says that those of us who are rich, and let's be clear, if we're here in this room together today by any reasonable global measurement, we are among the richest people that have ever lived. Those of us who are rich have a greater obligation for taking care to make sure that that chasm does not continue to widen. But it's not just because we have the money. It's not just because we have the money. It's because the wealth interferes with our ability to understand, perceive, and utilize those other means of transaction that God has given us. Our wealth makes it possible for us to live in a world where we believe that our wealth provides us with the things that, as Paul says, God actually gives us, and which are properly owned when we also give to others. The real world, the kingdom of God, is the world in which what is received is also shared. So the example of how we make common meaning and value with money is a way that we can learn about how to make common meaning and value with generosity and mercy and love. I want to offer a a small example that I read in the newspaper this last week. Uh, that I think illustrates this principle pretty well. Uh, A man whose name escapes me right now, but he's the CEO of the Panera Bread Company. It's a chain of bread stores, and they make bread significantly for us in our religious tradition. That is the item for sale in their chain of stores. Bread made by the Panera Bread Company, the CEO of which last week embarked on a little experiment in which he tried to eat on the uh, equivalent cash value of what a person on food stamps receives every week. He tried to eat on the equivalent cash value of food stamps. You know what he discovered? He couldn't do it. You get about $4 a day to eat when you're on food stamps. And the CEO of a company that makes bread said and wrote an article about this on CNN, and he said, I thought I knew what it was to be hungry before I tried to live for a week on food stamps. Turns out, I didn't know a thing about what it was to be hungry. This man offers us a lesson about what Jesus is getting at in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man's sin is not his wealth. It's his inability to see Lazarus as another human being, The rich man regards Lazarus as a unit of exchange whose value is in relieving his own suffering. He says, oh, Father Abraham, he doesn't even speak directly to Lazarus, you notice. Oh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus with some water to cool my tongue. The rich man cannot, for his own attachment to his wealth, cannot see Lazarus as another human being, another child of God, Beloved of God, and to whom the rich man is related by dint of being part of the common human family. John Chrysostom, who was the bishop of Constantinople in the fourth century and a great theologian in the church, commenting on this passage says, Why Abraham? Why not Moses or Noah or Adam? Or why not God himself? Why is Lazarus cradled in the bosom of Abraham? And he says it's because Abraham showed hospitality to strangers. Abraham was generous to strangers. Abraham forced his hospitality on people just passing by his tent. Hey, you, come over here and share what food I have. If you went to our parish weekend a couple of weeks ago, at the closing Eucharist, we, we read from Paul's letter to the Romans in which he says the first priority for the churches to contribute to the needs of the saints. And the second priority is to extend hospitality to strangers. And the third priority is to feed your enemies, thereby making reconciliation with them. These are the currencies of exchange in God's kingdom and the common effort of making meaning, and not just meaning, but making a real life that God calls us to. And in Jesus, all these things are revealed in their perfection because he gave not only of his abundance, but he gave his own life for the sake of each of us, therefore setting the perfect example of what it means to live in imitation of God, who gives without asking in return. The model of exchange in God's kingdom is there for us to participate in, and by our collective efforts, as we strive more and more together to achieve a common understanding and common participation in the life of God, we more and more close that gap between rich and poor and between those who suffer and those who are in abundance. And each of us is both of those people needing both the, the, the generosity that the rich man misses and also the generosity that Lazarus receives from Abraham. So in our practice, in our daily living keeping in mind the opportunity that we have to exchange on the market of God's kingdom with the currencies of generosity, love, mercy, forgiveness. Let each of us daily trade on that market and grow God's kingdom until the whole world
1: knows God's abundance in Jesus' name. Amen.